seated. Well, if you have a copy of the Word of God, we invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke and the ninth chapter, Luke chapter 9. There are many forces against the people of God, many endeavoring to quell the zeal of the saints, discourage them, and we cannot, we cannot in any way give up the battle. So we lift our battle song and ask the Lord to lead us on and strengthen us for the task and bless the work of our hands. We're going through the Gospel of Luke. This has been our study now for some time and we have come to the ninth chapter and we have already given consideration to the opening six verses. We come tonight to verses seven through nine. I was tempted to push in and bring in the opening words that lead into the feeding of the 5,000 as well, but I'm going to leave that for next time, God willing. So it's verses 7 through 9 tonight. So let's hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 9, verse 1. This is the word of God. It is your privilege to hear it and consider it a privilege, indeed the greatest privilege that you can have. Luke 9, verse 1. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither of two coats apiece. Whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet, for a testimony against them. They departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias or Elijah had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, But who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. Amen. Ending the reading there. May the Lord write his word on our hearts and give us the instruction that we need. Let us all pray. Let's seek the Lord. God, with thy word open before us, we pray for help. How we are thankful to have the word of God. At this moment in time, we pray again for the ministries that endeavor to get the word of God out to lives and hearts. Remember even the Neighborhood Bible Club this Saturday. We pray that thy favor would be upon those that endeavor to reach this this people, those that gather around, those children that assemble, give favor, gather them in to hear the word. May there be profit, may there be souls saved. May thy word not be given forth in vain. And may it be so tonight as well. Lord, we empty ourselves before thee. We acknowledge that it would be an awful thing just to, in some academic fashion, give consideration to these verses. Give us thy mind, thy heart, a word for the season, the mind of the Lord, that which will impact hearts and lives. God, sanctify. God, save. And do good this night. And fill us with the Holy Ghost, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 18, we're told of an encounter between Israel's king Ahab and the prophet Elijah. At this encounter, the king said to the prophet, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Are you the one that's troubling the nation? Now you may ask the question, is it possible for one man to trouble a nation. You might have different ideas as to whether or not that is the case. But it's true that one man can trouble a nation. When we read the Word of God in Joshua chapter 7, verse 25, we note there that Joshua said to Achan on that occasion, Why hast thou troubled us? And when he says us, he's meaning the nation. You have troubled the nation. 
and he had troubled the nation by his sin. But that's different from the trouble that Elijah was causing. Elijah wasn't troubling the nation. Elijah was awakening the nation. Elijah was doing good to the nation. Achan indeed was troubling the nation. His sin was bringing the judgment of God upon the people. But Elijah was being used of God to alarm the people and awaken them to their sin and their need to repent. And in a similar manner, Jesus Christ was in a positive way troubling the nation. He was being used in such a fashion to such a degree that it was stirring the nation, stirring the region. So much so that his ministry in the region of Galilee was beginning to bother one of the rulers of the territory, namely Herod. And we have read of him here tonight. Herod was the son of Herod the Great, the ruler that killed the infants at the time of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is referred to on a number of occasions in Luke's gospel as Herod the Tetrarch. That's a compound word for those musicians who may know what a tetrachord is. You'll have some idea that tetra means fourth part of something in the Greek. And then arche in the Greek indicates beginning or ruler. So you pull those together and you have, like you'd talk about an archbishop, tetrarch. Well, this is a ruler of a fourth part of the region. And this particular region that Herod was over covered Galilee. We know something of him already. We have come across him in Luke chapter 3. We know that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, preached against Herod, called him to account for his sin. And we have it recorded for us in Luke 3 verse 19. Herod the Tetrarch being reproved by him, that's by John, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So he had a particular sin of having taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and other evils that he had committed, and then added to them by imprisoning the prophet. And we have read here that it proceeded, it went further than that, as we will learn a little more tonight, that he actually beheaded John. And so you have it here in this passage in verse 9 of what we have read. Herod said, John, have I beheaded? And so he takes responsibility. He takes ownership of this sin added to all the other sins. But what is curious about these verses is that Luke inserts them here to show just before Christ begins to move away from Galilee, before he moves on and begins to well, he's going to move right around in a kind of loop fashion before he makes his way to Jerusalem. But, but prior to that, it, it, Luke highlights the fact that such was the impression of Christ's ministry that it was getting the attention of even a man like Herod. So that's like some preacher preaching in Greenville or some other part of America, and they are being watched by some of the rulers of the area, that they're, they're paying attention to what they're saying and trying to figure out what is going on and the distinction between them and perhaps other teachers of the Word of God. What you will find, I think, is that Herod here, as he heard of all that was done by Jesus, and he was perplexed because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and so on and so forth. What I think you will find is that Herod was troubled in his mind, or we might say more technically, that his conscience was bothering him in relation to what he was hearing concerning the miracles done by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was haunted by the guilt of his sin, and troubled by what was going on. And so tonight, we are considering these three verses under the heading of the title, Galilee's Ruler Troubled by Galilee's Savior. Galilee's Ruler Troubled by Galilee's Savior. And I want us to note, first of all, the perplexing, the perplexing things that Herod heard. Look at 7 and 8, verse 7 and 8. Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elijah had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. So you can see that there's rumors that are going around in relation to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to note here, in relation to this, first of all, the things he heard troubled his conscience. 
The things he heard troubled his conscience. Why is it that I say to you tonight that Herod's conscience was troubled? The miracles of Christ are gaining attention. And what is unusual about what we have here in terms of Herod trying to figure out what's going on or who is doing all of this is that when, as we'll see a little later, when he comes to the conclusion that this is John raised from the dead, that when we look at the ministry of John, John never actually performed any miracle. There is no record. In fact, we are told in John's Gospel, chapter 10, explicitly that John did no miracle. That was not given to him. We could surmise as to the reason why, but one of the reasons may be simply to to maintain a distinction between the forerunner and the Messiah. The forerunner is preparing the way, but he is doing so without miracles. And so all that is prophesied concerning the Messiah, about giving sight to the blind and enabling the lame to walk and so on, very clearly is, is concentrated on the person of the Messiah. Herod's murder of John causes him to leap to conclusions. He knows that something supernatural is going on. In fact, everyone knows that something supernatural is going on. And so you have this sense of the supernatural in what is being said. They're perplexed because, is it John that's raised from the dead? Is it Elijah that has appeared? Is it some of the other old prophets that have been risen from the dead? This is supernatural thinking. Everyone is talking in such a fashion that reveals the, 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 the fundamental realization that something unusual is going on, something supernatural is happening, God is doing something at this present time. The Spirit then was using the ministry of Jesus Christ to trouble people and get them to think about things in a way that they never thought before. This aspect, this, this, this ministry, this experience of being troubled about things, this, this sense of, of recognizing God is moving or God is acting in our lives and being troubled about our sin, recognizing that there's something wrong and as we're confronted with things and, and the Spirit uses that, that's a very common experience and a very, a very important experience for man to have. I don't know if you've ever gone through it. I imagine you have the sense of something happening in your life, things going on in your life, and you begin to ask yourself, why is this happening? And your mind is drawn to to think about whether or not God is directly involved in the events that are unfolding in your life. What is God teaching me? How am I to think about this? Now, we're not always right. We're not always right in our conclusions that we might come, for example, to a conclusion that God is judging me when that's not the case at all. But it's a recognition of the supernatural. It's a recognition that something is going on. It's, it's an understanding that quite possibly God is doing something here, and you're trying to figure out what it is. This experience of our conscience of, of being troubled about things is important. And I want you to turn for a moment to John's Gospel, chapter 16. John, chapter 16. And note how the Lord speaks of the important ministry of the Spirit of God, the vital ministry of the Spirit of God. John chapter 16, and he's been speaking of the Spirit. You can see that from verse 7. The Comforter will come. Then in verse 8, we are told, and when he is come, that's the Spirit, when the Spirit has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, because they believe not in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now, this is an important aspect of of the ministry of the Spirit of God. And the Lord Jesus laying out to His apostles the fact that there will be this pronounced activity of the Spirit that you will witness, that you will see carried out through your ministry and in the world. And it's interesting what is being taught here because the idea of reproving is that of convincing. And the sense of being convinced is by bringing evidence before us. And so what the Lord is saying is that the Spirit will bring evidence before the minds of men to to bring them to a conclusion about matters. The Spirit uses evidence in the minds of sinners to convince them 
that what they're being taught or what is being put before them is true. They need convinced, of course, of their sin. That's what it says, of sin, because they believe not in me or on me. And so we see that the first work of the Spirit is to make men aware of the fact that their unbelief is a problem, that their denial of Jesus Christ is not something they can pass over. They should be deeply troubled by the sense that they don't believe in the Son of God. That's one of the first activities of the Spirit of God. They also need convinced of their need of righteousness, of righteousness, verse 10, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What's he saying here? They need convinced of their righteousness and the need for righteousness because it was by righteousness that Jesus went before the Father. It was by his obedience he entered in before the Father. And so the sense is that man needs to be brought to a realization that he will never go to the Father unless he has a righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds his own righteousness. Therefore, he's pointed to the righteousness of another. And this is part of the Spirit's work, is to make man deeply aware, not just of his sin, but then of his need for righteousness, and to find that righteousness in Jesus Christ so that they can go to the Father. Then they need convinced of the reality of judgment, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The fact that this judgment will be overseen by Jesus Christ there's no greater evidence that he is overall than the fact that he is judgment even over the prince of this world. So it's elevating Christ. It's a sense of the Spirit teaching man that Jesus Christ is judge over all, and we're all subject to him, and one day we will give account before the judgment seat of Christ. So this is an overview of the activity of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the minds and consciences of men. And this is vital. Is absolutely vital. There, there can be nothing done in terms of the kingdom of God. If the Spirit does not work in this way regularly in the hearts of men, there will be no salvation, no genuine work of God, no growth in the church, no adding of souls into the body of Christ. There will be a dearth that leads to the extinction of the church. These are just some of the matters that the Spirit uses in the lives of men. And I've said it before, at least I think I've said it here, that the only friend we have in the sinner is the conscience. We have nothing else to go after. You can try and preach a message that goes after their heart and try to lure them with the, the heartstrings into some lull of, of appreciating Jesus Christ. You can try and motivate them by various ways, but, but you're going to fail to see genuine conversion if you don't go after the conscience. There has to be a going after the conscience. Without this, we fail. To the preachers here tonight, if you don't go after the conscience, you will fail. It is, as I've said, the only friend you have. Go after the conscience and expect the Spirit to use your attempt to go after the conscience as a means to bring men to an understanding of their need. Well, going back to Herod, Herod had heard not just all that was done by Jesus Christ, but he had been blessed to hear the Word of God taught. And not by some half-hearted preacher, but by one of the greatest preachers that ever walked the face of the earth. A man who went after the conscience. And we'll see a little more about that in just a moment. So, I want you to recognize that when you look at verse 7, and it tells us that Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed. Perplexed because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elijah had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. There's something in his mind that is working. Something in his mind that is not able to ignore what's going on. Something that's causing him to ask questions and get to the bottom of the matter. So we note that the things he heard troubled his conscience, but also the things he heard contradicted a common belief. This is just an aside. And I don't think it was in any way 
something that was on his mind, but I just wanted to bring it out. When you read the language of what is said, of the rumors that are going around, it's all in relation to resurrection. You'll see that. John's raised from the dead. Elijah has appeared. Obviously, he must have come from wherever he is. And, and one of the old prophets, again, one of them have, have risen from the dead. When, when, when you have all of that, you have a, have a sense of, of, of the thinking behind all of this is that there is such a thing as resurrection. But there was a group, a very powerful group, though a small-ish group called the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection. They denied the resurrection. We'll find that when we eventually get to Luke chapter 20, when the Sadducees come and they, they start to interact with the Lord Jesus. They denied the resurrection. And yet they were a very powerful group. Many within the Sanhedrin, many before the council, the Jewish council that Jesus Christ came before, would have been Sadducees in terms of their theology and their belief. Now, I don't believe this is the case for Herod. But I'm just pointing out that, the, that the, what's going on, what's being rumored, is not something that would have stemmed from the Sadducees. They would not have been indicating that there's a possible resurrection going on here. And so the things that he is hearing contradicts a common belief that you would find among the Sadducees. But that brings us, secondly then, not only to see the perplex, perplexing things, if I can get that word out, that Herod heard, but the instructive question that Herod asked. The instructive question that Herod asked. Verse 9 tells us that he asked a question, Who is this of whom I hear such things? Who is this? This question, who is this? is really what all the Gospels are about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they are all about answering the question, who is this? And Luke's no different. He peppers his Gospel with the inquiries that relate around the, 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 this question or questions like this. Who is this man? Just to remind you of that fact, go to chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. We'll go through a number of verses. So you can see how Luke is developing questions like this and bringing them to light. Luke chapter 5, verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You can see the question arises. Who is this? Chapter 7, verse 16. You can see that there's a conclusion that's betting into some in terms of answering this question. There came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. So there's, there's a certain answer that's arising within the people in relation to this question. Verse 20 of the same chapter, when the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Again, this, this question, who are you, even coming from John the Baptist and his disciples? Verse 49, again of the same chapter. They that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Chapter 8, verse 25. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they being afraid, this is the disciples amidst the storm, they being afraid, wandered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Chapter 9, verse 18. And here, as I said to you in previous weeks, when we come to chapter 9, we're coming to a transition. There is a transition that's developing over the course of this section of Luke's gospel. And so you see that become very clear, even in terms of these questions and trying to determine who the Lord Jesus is. Chapter 9, verse 18, came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, whom say the people that I am? And we are told in verse 20, but whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God. We're getting close to the heart of the matter. We're getting to the issue of who he truly is, and this is becoming clear in this transition. So you would imagine then that everyone's aware of this. We've, we've come to the conclusion this is the Christ of God, but that's not the case. They're still wondering, is he some prophet or something else? And this is still the question. When you come to the very end, go to chapter 22, right at the end of the gospel, there's still this 
query over who the Lord Jesus is. Chapter 22, verse 67. As he's before the Jewish council, art thou the Christ? So again, it's not dealing with some random prophet. It's getting to the heart of the the aspirations of the Jew, what they're looking for, art thou the Messiah? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. So he is acknowledging who he is, but the question is still being put. And then finally, even from the ungodly wretch Pilate, chapter 23, verse 3, Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. So this question that Herod is asking is not an isolated one. It's not one that's unique to him. It's one that we find throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ with varying answers And what it actually does is highlight for us who truly is the Lord's. And so when the question at this transition period is asked and put to the disciples, they're clear. You're the Christ. Leading up to it, men are uncertain. Maybe he's one of the prophets. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe it's John raised from the dead. The disciples come to an understanding, no, this is the Christ. Later on, the Jewish Sanhedrin, they, they know something's up. And they know who he's reflecting himself to be. He's not saying that he's Elijah or anything else. And so they ask the question directly, Art thou the Christ? Not with any intent that they would believe, but to put him on the spot, because they know deep down that there's much evidence to the fact. Well, Herod, Herod is asking this question, Who is this? Who is this? And I want you to note a couple of things here. First, Herod arrived at the wrong conclusion because he listened to the wrong people. He arrived at the wrong conclusion because he listened to the wrong people. Turn to Mark chapter 6. And this is an important part of the whole narrative relating to Herod and his interaction with John. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias or Elijah, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Now, when that is put at the point in which we find it here in Mark's gospel, it is John, It then goes on in verse 17 to tell us something of what had happened. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison and so on. And if I'm reading what Mark is putting before us, if I'm understanding the the, the way in which he's framing all of this, he is saying that everyone's wondering, is he Elijah or some other prophet? But Herod can't be convinced otherwise than that this is John raised from the dead And what follows then is a reason why he would be thinking that way. Because he had killed John. And so his mind is working in such a way almost to think that in some fashion he has risen up to threaten Herod's little kingdom. Because that's really what's going on. That's what's bothering Herod more than anything anything else. It's the fact that he's the ruler and there he is reigning in Galilee with his, with his little kingdom. And Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God. The disciples have been sent forth to preach the kingdom of God. And there's a whole host of people who have been taken by all of this. And it's rattling his little kingdom. And he's wondering, has John come back from the dead to take away my kingdom from me? Maybe he had heard John preached in terms of the kingdom of God and the coming Messiah. Maybe John had delineated clearly the implications of the coming Messiah and what that would mean to a little king like him. So when you bring all this together, when you try to bed yourself into the context, 
I think you come away with this sense that Herod's troubled and he is coming to the conclusion that this is John because he is bothered by what he has done to him and thinks that God has raised him from the dead to remove his kingdom from him. There could be all sorts of reasoning about the matter, no doubt. You might wonder, well, why not just believe that it's the Messiah? Why, why? I mean, given the fact that the miracles are being performed and they fulfill some of the Old Testament prophecies, and Herod's maybe aware of that, instead of looking to the forerunner, why not just anchor in on the idea that this is the Messiah? But this, this brings us to a realization of the heart of man. Man will reason in every conceivable fashion, even when it doesn't make sense, to come to a conclusion that leads him away from Christ, whatever it is. That such is his heart, he cannot reason himself to believe in Jesus Christ. His heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The man is dead in trespasses and in sins. He, he cannot of himself believe what is true and right. So he will reason through everything conceivable, think through all the possibilities, and still not acknowledge Jesus as the Savior and Messiah that was promised. You would imagine that with all the opinions that were going around, at least one of them might have been the right one. It's Elijah, it's John, it's one of the prophets. Is there no one there to say? Is there no one there to influence and give the, another opinion? And again, you, you have there, even in terms of the opinions that are filtering through to Herod, what he's hearing, he is only hearing the false ideas. And this is why he arrived at the wrong conclusion because he listened to the wrong people. Herod had his little informants the people in Galilee who would come back and say, Herod, here's what's going on, or he would send them out and say, keep an eye on this and come back to me. What are the people saying? He would have all of that going on, and they're all the wrong people. And this is exactly the same as people who are trying to ask themselves or come to some kind of conclusion whether or not Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is He the Savior of men, is Christianity true, and where do they go? They go, as I've said before, they go to the internet. They go to people who don't believe these things. Can the Bible be trusted? And they go and ask an atheist. But they never go to the Bible. They never go to the source of the truth. They, they seldom go to someone that can point them in the right direction. And this, this shows you 2,000 years have passed and man does the very same thing that he's always done. He comes to a conclusion, this is John, without actually going to someone who could tell him with authority who it was that was performing these miracles. If there's anyone here tonight who doubts the claims of Jesus Christ and wonders whether or not that Christianity is true in all of its claims, let me ask you about where it is you're going to come to your conclusions and encourage you, whatever you do, do not go to the mob. Don't go to unbelieving informants who have a vested interest in having you align with them because misery loves company and unbelievers like to swell their numbers. And the last thing they want is to see you come to saving faith in Christ and have your sins forgiven. They want to bring you along with them. Be careful when listening to people. And make sure that when you seek an opinion about Jesus Christ that you're going to a reliable source. The quantity of opinions will not assure you of the truth. The plausibility of opinions will not assure you of the truth. You need to come 
to the experience of the apostle when he's able to say, I know whom I have believed. I know it. How did he know it? He met with the risen Christ. You say, well, how do I meet with the risen Christ? You take the word of God and you read it. You say, but it's just a book. It's just a book. It's not just a book. It is God's book. It's like someone said to W.P. Nicholson, the Northern Irish evangelist. Nicholson, all you have for your salvation is paper with writing on it. And Nicholson said, correct, but it's God's writing that's on the paper. God has given his word. And you will find in the word of God, as thousands have, thousands and thousands and thousands have, found time and time again, that God reveals himself and his son through his word. And you can meet with Jesus Christ in the word. And you can come to understand the reality of who he is and what he has done and what that can do for you as you face your sin and the certainty of judgment after this life. Herod arrived at the wrong conclusion because he listened to the wrong people. And Herod arrived at the wrong conclusion because his conscience tormented him. I just want to underscore this in this part in terms of arriving at the wrong conclusion because he asks this question, who is this? And he comes to the wrong conclusion because his conscience was tormenting him. Let me illustrate it this way. It's the man who knows that he has done wrong that looks over his shoulder. It's the smuggler who sweats when he goes through customs. And it is the king who has murdered the prophet who comes to the conclusion that that prophet is raised from the dead when he hears of all these miracles going on. He had a conscience that was leading him to conclude that this must be John coming, I think, to threaten his kingdom, to take away from him what he was so enamored by and what he so adored. And this brings us then to the most powerful way to live your life. The most powerful condition that any man can find himself in and seek to maintain by the grace of God. What's the most powerful way to live your life? What is the one thing that you can set as a goal and say, if I do this, I have done everything. I have done exactly what it is that the Lord would have me to do. It is summarized by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, where he says, Herein do I exercise myself, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. There is no more powerful standing for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl than to be able to say, that we exercise ourselves in this one area to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. When a man has a conscience void of offense toward God and man, he's not looking over his shoulder. He's not sweating when he goes through customs. And when someone says something about him, or rumors are going around, He doesn't begin to sweat wondering if it is getting to the heart of the matter, some hidden sin. He knows, he knows before God that he has a conscience void of offense before God and man, and he is free. And so man can say whatever he likes. People can say whatever they want, and he's not troubled by it. He doesn't lose a wink of sleep. This is the most powerful way to live. It's the most powerful way to deal with conflict. It's the most powerful way to conduct your affairs. It's the most powerful way to live your life, period. And Herod had not lived this way. <laughs> this is why he's coming to this wrong conclusion. It is John. 
No, it's not. No, it's not. But I know why you're thinking it, Herod. You have not lived as you ought. You killed God's prophet. And you're troubled by it. Man can't help it, can he? He does wrong and he wonders, will it come back to bite me? Even to the degree that it's possible that someone would rise from the dead to torment you in the wrong that you have done. Thirdly, the misleading desire that Herod felt. The misleading desire that Herod felt. The fact that it is recorded that he had a desire to see Jesus hints at something positive, doesn't it? So we read in verse 9, and he desired to see him. Now, we'll get to it eventually, but you'll find in Luke chapter 23 that he finally gets his desire. And Luke uses the language that he was desired to see him of a long season. And so if you were to sit and read Luke's gospel in one sitting, or you have a good memory, you would read chapter 9, and then you would get to chapter 23, and you'd realize, oh, oh look, Herod had his desire come to pass. Because we were already told that he desired to see him back in chapter 9. So a whole year and a half or so has passed, and then Herod gets the desire that he had within his heart. But I want you to note a couple of things about this desire. First, it was a desire that fell short of desperation. It was a desire that fell short of desperation. When you think about Herod thinking that he was desirous to see Jesus... What, what, was, what was driving that? What was the desire all about? Was he desire to, desirous to figure out who he was, or was he desirous to figure out who he wasn't? You know, maybe he's, he's, it is John, but he's desirous to see him to see, is this really John? What's going on in his mind? I can't tell you all the details. I don't know everything that was going on, but whatever the case, his curiosity was not sufficient to move him. I mean, if he's really thinking, this is John. This is the man I murdered. This is the man I gave the command off with his head. I mean, if he's really thinking that way, you would imagine that if he had any consideration, any sense of self-preservation even, that he would be going, he'd be running out to see who he is and to beg for mercy. But that's not what we find You think of all those that we've already dealt with, even in the previous chapter, those that had a sense of desperation and the way they ran to him, whether it's Jairus or or whether it's the woman with the issue of blood, they're they're, they're running after the Lord Jesus. They they feel the desperation. They, They sense the need to get to the one who can help and figure out who this one is and whether or not he can help them. But Herod does not do that. He doesn't move a muscle. He was desirous to see him, But a whole year and a half passes when you come to chapter 23, and (laughs) this is the first time that he's meeting Jesus. And you would think if he really had a desire that that he would have have done something about it. And this is not uncommon. It is not uncommon for people to have some faint desire. But I don't really think that's what is at the heart of Herod. I don't think he's having this desire in some positive way. This is something sinister that underlines this desire, as we'll see in just a moment. And what's going on with Herod, as he hears all the stories, and I want you to think about it in in the sense that these stories aren't coming like in one day. They're coming constantly, flowing to him. And every story, every event, every detail should be moving him to finally decide, I need to go and figure out who this is. But he refuses to go. Even, go back a moment, just to chapter 8 as well the beginning of chapter 8 of Luke's gospel. Because we have a detail here in relation to the the woman that the Lord helped and healed. And we're told in verse 3 of Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward. And this was one of the women that was helped, that had been delivered by the Lord. And she had been sick or maybe devils or whatever the Lord had done for her. And now she's following the Lord, ministering unto him of her substance. So his steward, Herod's steward, 
his right-hand man, the man who was always there day and night to tend to him, to mediate between individuals who would want to see Herod and all the rest of it. I'm quite sure that Herod had regular conversation with his steward. And I don't think a stretch of imagination that at some point his steward said to him, you know what, Herod, my wife is really not well. And she's troubled with whatever it was that she was troubled with. And Herod might say, well, have you tried this? Or have you gone to that person? And the steward would say, yes, sir. She's gone to them. She's gone to the other. Maybe Herod would say, well, what about my royal doctor? I give permission to use him. Thank you very much, sir. And off she goes. He takes a look at her, examines her, tries to see what's wrong with her, prescribes something to help her, to no avail. One day he walks in, Herod asks his steward again, well, any progress? No, sir. No progress. She's no better. Sorry to hear that. And then one day, Herod asks again, How's your wife? And he replies, You're not going to believe it. But there's a man, the one that John used to talk about. She went to him, and she's never been better. In fact, she's so taken up by him that whenever he's in our area, she goes out and gives money to him, supports him and the disciples that follow him. This is the kind of information, as well as all of the natural rumors that the Lord allowed to flow into the ears and into the heart of Herod. And so he is desirous to see him. But it was a desire that fell short of desperation. He heard John preach, but he didn't repent. He liked John, but he didn't repent. He desired to see Christ, but he didn't repent. He was sorry to have to kill John, but he didn't repent. He fell short at every hurdle. He did not go far enough. And what we find, if you turn for a moment to Luke chapter 13, there's a detail given to us here which does not bode well in terms of what's going on in his mind. And I think establishes further the sense of threat that Herod had Whoever it is that's doing these miracles, he is feeling the threat against his own little kingdom. Luke 13, verse 31. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And Jesus said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. But do you note the detail? Herod will kill thee. Rumors had started to spread how Herod was feeling about this miracle worker. And so the desire to see him does not bode well for the Lord Jesus. But even worse, it does not bode well for Herod. As I say, I think that Herod felt the threat upon his own little kingdom. I think, if I understand the language of John's preaching, preaching the kingdom of God, Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, the disciples preaching the kingdom of God, and indicating that there's another king 
and he's here, and he's ministering, and he's helping people, and thousands are following after him. Herod's there with his little throne and feels all empowered, but, but really thousands of people don't follow Herod. They don't have a love for him. He's an Edomite. The Jews don't respect him. They have no real heart for him. He's just kind of there. It's just a consequence of the way things have fallen out. They don't want him there. They have no real love for him. And now this man has been followed by throngs of people. And there's whispers that he's a king. Yes, because actually at this point that we're at, when we come to the feeding of the 5,000, John's gospel reveals in John chapter 6 that at that point they want to make him a king. So, so that didn't come immediately. That talk was going on, that they wanted to make him king. And when they saw him feeding the 5,000, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you like. That was it. We, we have to make him king. So there's this threat against Herod. And his desire to see Jesus Christ was a desire that would not go far enough. It was not an honorable one. It fell short of desperation. Indeed, if I discern it correctly, his motives are not honorable at all. But it was also a desire that was influenced by a woman. It was a desire that was influenced by a woman. John's ministry, John the Baptist, his ministry was one of calling men to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And John learned what every faithful preacher learns. That is, you can get away with a lot if your remarks are general. You can say all sorts of things as long as you're general, but as soon as you're specific, you will feel the heat. So you can stand before a crowd and you can say before that crowd, you're all liars, everyone's fine. But stand before an individual and say, you're a liar, and you will feel the impact of that coming back at you. And John experienced that very thing. In Mark chapter 6, if you go back there again, just to look at some of the details, you learn the influence that Herodias had over Herod. John chapter 6, or pardon me, not John 6, Mark chapter 6, forgive me. Mark 6 verse 17 Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake. So there's the motive, there's the reason. His brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him. See, John could go out and preach in the wilderness and say all he wanted about sin, but if you start getting specific... This marriage is wrong. She had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. Or that is to say, he kept him. He wanted to keep him close to watch him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. When a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for the sex which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in the charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. This is the sober event, the somber reality of what man will do when influenced by another. And in this case, by a woman. I can see the scene. It's his birthday. The wine is flowing. 
They're all having a great time. And I can see Herodias plotting. I can see her conniving. While everyone's just having a good time, her mind is just always turning in her head. How? How can we get rid of John? And then a little window of opportunity appears. She seizes upon it with both hands. As I say, John came to understand what it is to preach against sin specifically. And let me underline this because there's a lot of talk at times about what it is to preach Christ. Ask the question, did John preach Christ? Yes. Behold the Lamb of God. That was his language. But you cannot preach Christ fully. You cannot fully do the work that you're called to do unless you enforce in the minds and consciences of men why it is that they need Christ. So yes, he preached Christ, but he also understood that to preach Christ is to incorporate why men need Christ by unearthing their sin and troubling their conscience. To do the first and not the second is to preach Christ in denial of the depravity of the human heart and leads to a preaching of Christ that focuses on emotional needs rather than the spiritual. And we have a lot of that today. And so no one's offended. No one's ever offended by the preaching. No one ever goes away thinking he was talking to me. (laughs) And God forbid, God forbid that that ever transpires in this place. Where we imagine ourselves to be above the need for conviction. The very thing that God uses amidst our ongoing battle with the depravity of our nature. The very thing that God uses to remind us again to flee to Christ. That I can only fully comprehend my need of Him when I deeply feel how sinful I am and wretched I am before God. So when a brother comes and says, Brother, there's a sin in your life. You take it with gratitude. You repent before God and you run to the cross where there's a remedy for all sin. Instead of, how dare you? And then conjure up ways, like Herodias, how you're going to get people back. Just as an aside, it was perfectly okay for Herod to offer Herodias' daughter, up to half of his kingdom. It was his to give. But once he realized what she was asking of him, he should have walked away and he should have repented of a hasty vow that should never have been made without fully understanding what he was going to be asked to do. It's actually a wonderful illustration of of being careful in terms of giving your word. Our confession of faith deals with it in chapter 22, paragraph 7. No man may vow or do anything forbidden in the word of God. So remember that, young people, young ladies, young men, When you promise to marry someone and you give your word but before you stand in the presence of God and the witnesses and exchange your vows you realize that they're not walking with God they don't know God. Repent of the vow that you made to agree to marry rather than to have 
to live in the ongoing repentance of a marriage that should never have taken place. I must close. And let me close in this way. Because we've dealt with the conscience tonight and the trouble that Herod felt in his own mind and his own heart. And let me say that the feeling, the feeling of guilt is one of the most destructive forces that any of us can face. The feeling that we have done wrong and there are consequences for it. And the only cure for it, men and women, the only cure for it is forgiveness before God. There is no other cure. So when you feel guilt, in one sense you can thank God for it. Paul writes to Timothy and he speaks of those who have their conscience seared. That they've gone so long in a sin that they no longer respond to the warnings of what they're doing. It's seared. And this very thing happened to Israel as a nation. You read in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3, Speaking of the nation, the prophet communicates very, very descriptive language about the conscience of the nation. Thou hadst a whore's forehead. Thou refusest to be ashamed. You live with the brazen attitude of a prostitute as if there's nothing to be ashamed of in your life you sense no remorse no guilt no shame you have raised your fist against God you have rebelled against the Almighty and you're just like a prostitute on the street who lives as if it's a perfectly normal and acceptable way of making a living before God. That's a seared conscience. And what is far worse than guilt is no guilt where there's sin. So I say to you, when you feel guilt and its destructive power Run to Christ. Flee to the cross. Bathe in the blood. Remember that there's a fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness in the house of David. That fountain we see at Calvary where the Son of God offered himself a sacrifice for sin, made atonement for sin, did what was necessary to bridge the gap between you and your sin and God and his holiness to reconcile you through the blood of his cross. Guilt is powerful, it's destructive, it's horrific, but there's an answer for it. But there's nothing, there is no answer for a conscience like Herod's who will not bow the knee and admit his sin before God and believe the gospel. May the Lord write his word on our hearts tonight. Let's bow together in prayer. We have had two very sober meetings today. That is not my doing, it's not what I planned it's not something that I wanted to do myself it's just how the Lord is directed and I wonder why I wonder what the Lord is saying or to whom the Lord may be speaking 
that there's someone here living their lives in such a fashion that you're acting as if you can get away with your sin day after day, week after week, month after month, and it won't catch up with you. And there is coming a day of reckoning, and there's a need to make amends before God and to do it while it is day, for the night cometh when there's no more opportunity. If I can help you, please speak to me after the meeting. I'll be glad to open the Word of God to you. Lord, we pray that thou wilt have mercy, and that thou wilt use thy word as we have considered it today. Thou knowest the need of every heart. Thou knowest the times when we must declare those uncomfortable portions of Scripture. And yet, Lord, these things are written for our learning, and not written for us to ignore. I pray, Lord, that none here would ever find themselves like Herod, with a conscience that was troubled, yet he didn't respond. He didn't run to Christ. He didn't try to find mercy. He just continued on and became more hardened in his heart and began to plot ways to kill the Lord Jesus. God, we pray that thou be pleased to give us tender hearts that respond speedily to thy calls to repentance. May we day by day, may we always turn our eyes to the cross for fresh cleansing from our sins. As thou hast taught us to pray, that thou wilt forgive our sins. We pray that thou wilt help us day by day to realize they need to be forgiven daily. So bless then each one that is gathered tonight. Use thy word for thy honor and for thy glory. Be with each one as they make their way home. And for those who go downstairs, we pray, meet with us in our fellowship time. Bless the food to us, we ask, and grant that our conversation may edify and build us up in our most holy faith. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.